We're back. Welcome back to the Talk With Your Pads College Football Podcast. Today we are going to dive into the AAC. That is the conference that I spend most of my time talking about, writing, tweeting about, you name it. Uh, I formerly did the the AAC podcast on Underdog Dynasty and now i'm just doing it here so we're going to dive into a few things today we are going to look at week one and the results from week one and what that means for the conference who can step up and be a contender uh sleeper teams that will shock us this year we'll dive into that if you haven't already i did i'm going to do uh, if depending on when this comes out, there's a piece I did on sleeper teams in the conference and who can step up with everything that we saw in week one. And then we will look at week two and maybe even look ahead at week three, given how much time we have. So let's go into week one. We obviously saw a lot of group of five teams get lots of exposure, which is great for those schools that don't normally get that attention. So the first one that we're going to look at is we look at SMU, who played Texas State. A lot of excitement around the Mustangs this year, even though they lose Rhett Lashley as their offensive coordinator. Shane Bouchelle is back. Reggie Roberson's back. Rishi Rice, Tyler Page. Uh, you look at the defense. You have Richard McBride leading that group. There's a lot to be excited about this team, but then they go to Texas State to San Marcos and they don't they don't really perform how we thought they would. They come away with a 31-24 win, but they looked really bad and to start the the game, it just didn't look like SMU had a game plan offensively. They tried to establish the run, it wasn't really working, but they kept doing it for some reason and then when they did pass, it was out of necessity instead of supplementing the run run game or trying to open up the field vertically so a lot of short passes screen passes that kind of stuff so texas state built a lot of momentum to start and smu just kind of i don't know they didn't really dominate well they didn't dominate and they didn't do what i thought they were going to do and they come away with a win but they ultimately struggled for the most part so that leaves the door open for other AAC teams to kind of jump in and maybe insert themselves as a contender in the conference. We'll dive into that in just a sec. The other two games, the first one, Memphis beats Arkansas State 37-24. The Tigers obviously are the defending AAC champions, and it didn't really look like they knew what they were doing right away either. Mike Durrell leaves for Florida State, and Ryan Silverfield takes over for this team. The offense corner stays, so there's not a lot of turnover in terms of the coaching staff on that side of the ball. But the defense is now under Mike McIntyre, the former Colorado coach, head coach, uh, and he was at Ole Miss before as well as a defensive coordinator, and now he's the defensive coordinator at Memphis. TJ Carter didn't really have an impact because Arkansas State essentially avoided his side of the field for the most part. They attacked uh, Savante Oliver, who struggled at the beginning of the game. He did eventually come down with a pick. It was a really nice pick, actually. Stole the ball away from the receiver. But it didn't look like the defense 
was dominating like they should have. Not to say that Arkansas State's not a good team because they're solid. They're going to be a contender in the Sun Belt. But Memphis, being that they're the former, they're the defending AAC champions, they should have had a better performance. They should have dominated this game a little bit more. Towards the end, the offense kind of figured things out. Brady White looks solid and threw four touchdowns. You know, So they got things going towards the end. But they have a long ways to go if they're going to defend that title, especially with UCF and Cincinnati being another two teams that will contend. They're probably the favorites now, given what we saw. And then last night, as I'm recording this on Tuesday, BYU absolutely destroys Navy 55-3. to Navy could not move the ball in the air or on the ground, and that is a problem when they can't move it on the ground because then they're kind of out of luck and they fell behind into a, a deficit that they're not accustomed to overcoming. Uh, the offense just isn't made to come back from down 30 points. They just don't have the tempo and you know, the speed to do that. Uh, not to say Navy isn't going to be a solid team, but things did not look good. And one thing I want to address with this is head coach Ken Niumatololo said that they didn't tackle, they didn't have contact leading to this game. And a lot of people are kind of, in my opinion, overreacting to that. You don't necessarily need to tackle each other in practice. There are other ways to teach tackling. And yes, there is nothing like the real thing, but it's not impossible to win football games without actually tackling. If you look at, there's a Division Three team in Minnesota called St. John's. They won a national championship in the early 2000s. And they hadn't tackled or had much contact in years. They, they, you know, under coach John Gallardi, they just don't, they don't tackle. They don't do a lot of contact to avoid injury and they won a national championship. And yes, I understand that is at the division three level, but if you can coach kids at the division three level to do something and be successful, you can get division one kids to do it. So I don't think that had as much to do with it with other than the fact that, or I say BYU was just a better team. That That's okay to just say. And it was clearly evident that BYU was more prepared. They were the more talented team. Navy was going through figuring out who their quarterback is going to be, which they still have to figure that out between Dalen Morris and and Perry Olsen. That is still much very much up for grabs. And, you know, it, it's not a matter of they didn't tackle. They just weren't prepared for BYU. And honestly, with everything going on, it feels like coaches have a little bit more to worry about, not giving them a pass for not being prepared for a game. But I understand that there are other things they're trying to focus on. They're trying to make sure their kids are healthy. They're trying to make sure that testing gets done. And it's you know there's a lot more on coaches' plates to worry about than just a football game. And to me, BYU is just a better team. They've been a team that, I mean, they beat USC last year. No offense to Navy, but they're not USC, even when USC is not having the best year. So BYU is just a better team. It doesn't have anything to do with them not tackling. If anything, the scheme that they were trying to put in defensively wasn't working. BYU's offensive line dominated Navy's defensive line, and BYU's defensive line and front seven really dominated controlled the trenches against navy's triple option so there's you can go into and overreact on one little thing that really doesn't 
have a huge impact on that game. It, it was, and honestly, it wasn't even a matter of tackling. If if, if you watch the game, BYU's offensive line was just dominating. There's there weren't even chances to tackle. So don't even go into they can't tackle because they just got blown away by a better team. Uh, so go back and watch the game again, and, and you'll see that tackling was really a minor issue in, in terms of what went wrong for Navy. So that wasn't really something that I, I thought was correct. I wanted to kind of try to get my thoughts on that, and now we can kind of move on because Navy and SMU were supposed to be two teams that would compete with the Memphis, the UCFs, the Cincinnati's. They were going to be the teams that were right there and competing with them. So who does that leave the door open for? Obviously, you could put Temple and Tulane. I think those are two solid teams that are kind of like Navy and SMU where they're hovering around. But I think you have to look at the other teams that all finished 4-8. and eight. There's four of them. Those are the teams that I think could benefit the most from from getting from these SMU the SMU struggles and the Navy loss. So the first team that's a sleeper team for me is Tulsa. So Philip Montgomery has to make a bowl game this year. I don't think there's any debate about that. He's won he won four games last year, he won three games the year before and two. So two of the year before that. So I think he's improving, but you can't go five and seven. You have to go at least six and six or what whatever. If the, you know this is a weird year so maybe he gets another year, even with a bad record, but I think that they're going to be much better. You know, he goes from going 16-10 and 10 in his first two seasons, and now he's gone 9-27 and 27 over the last three. I'm not sure how he's still there, and I, I now that this pandemic is going and making everything so up in the air, I mean, Tulsa, just, Tulsa and Oklahoma State had to push their game back to next week to week three uh they were going to play in week two but they're not anymore because of you know more cases so i think maybe teams will be more likely to kind of just wait things out and not fire someone although we saw southern miss just fire their coach jay hobson but we're not going to go into that so tulsa maybe has him another year and this is a team that i think is going to be really good zach smith is the quarterback that tulsa has been hurting to have over the last few years and he's joined by two great running backs shamari brooks is the star and Corey taylor is the secondary back that can also do plenty of damage uh, you know there's plenty of options at receiver and their offensive line will be solid as well the question will be once again what can their defense do and we're not going to dive too deep into that but that's going to be their biggest question you know, they come into this year, they had they had two wins over Mountain West teams in San Jose State and Wyoming. Those two teams were pretty good last year. They almost upset Memphis, and they upset UCF, which that is a game that no one really saw coming. Is that a sign for Tulsa on the way up? Is that a sign for UCF on the way down? We don't really know. I don't think UCF's on the way down. I do think that Tulsa is on the way up, and if they don't, then <laughs> I don't see how Philip Montgomery keeps his job, but the, it's why Tulsa is a sleeper team. I think they have a chance to sneak their way up to even, you know, with the Tulsa's and Tulane's SMU. That's that's why SMU's performance and Navy's performance are a big deal to Tulsa. Team number two is ECU. I have been on the Holton Aylers bandwagon ever since he got to ECU. 
I have been hyping him up for a while now. I love what he can do. Obviously, consistency is going to be the biggest concern with his game. You know, we've seen multiple 400-yard passing games, even a 500-yard passing game against Cincinnati, once one of the best secondaries in all of college football. So that's exciting. There's a lot of promise with that offense. He returns his top three receivers. So that's exciting. And ECU was close to beating both Cincinnati and SMU. Uh, the Bearcats needed a field goal as time expired to beat the Pirates. And the Mustangs needed two fourth quarter touchdowns to kind of put away ECU, but they still only won by eight. So this is a team that's offensively definitely competitive enough to beat anybody. It Again, just like Tulsa, it's going to come down to the defense. And I think Mike Houston is the perfect fit for that program because he will get the defense ready to go. Team number three, I don't think this happens, but given that everybody's kind of counting them out, that makes them the perfect sleeper team, and that is USF. Jeff Scott comes from Clemson after being their co-offensive coordinator, and he takes over a USF team that needs a culture shift. That's the best way to put it. He'll have one of the best secondaries in the country. Uh, KJ Sales, Nick Roberts, Bentley Sanders, and Mike Hampton all return. They're all all conference-type talent. They can make things easier for USF this year. It's just a matter of really everybody else. The offense has a lot of things they need to figure out, but that's why Scott is here. I don't think that they will be the sleeper team that shocks everybody, but given that I join a lot of other people and thinking that they don't have a chance, that makes them a great sleeper team. The team that I am covering and also think is a sleeper team after this year or in this year, rather, is the Houston Cougars. So I don't like saying that Houston is a sleeper team just because they have higher expectations, but I think we all saw last year coming, whether we wanted to admit it or not. Dana Holgerson takes over a team that was struggling, and they go 4-8 last year, and now they have a time, uh, a chance to turn things around. They can switch the culture here. They can get back to what they, you know, what they were planning to do, which is be a contender in the AAC, beat Power Five teams, and recruit at a high level. With the talent that is in the Houston area, there's no reason why they can't do that. So, Clayton Tune is back at quarterback after getting almost a full year of experience. Obviously, Derek King played the first four games, and then decided to transfer. So now Tune is the guy at quarterback. He gets Keith Corbin back, which is a huge addition to that wide receiver group. And Marquez Stevenson, who almost had 1,000 yards last year, is also back a speedster that can benefit from Corbin's return because Corbin's going to stretch the defense vertically, which will open things up underneath for Stevenson and the other guys to make plays. The offensive line is going to be the biggest key for the offense. They were horrendous at times last year, and... It's the biggest reason why Toon was <laughs> had to show off his legs. He was running a lot of times for his life, and it's hard to get in rhythm when you're catching the snap and immediately having to run. So that's going to be something to watch. Uh, that's the group that needs to improve the most. On defense, it's going to be the secondary. Uh, you know, Deontay Anderson was solid at safety. Demarion Williams was great at corner, but they the, the talent dropped off after that. Uh, Troy transfer Marcus Jones. It sounds like he has a cornerback spot locked up, uh, but we just need to find the nickelback and another safety spot, which 
I trust Joe Cawthon to figure that out. And Dana Holgerson brought in a number of transfers and recruited a number of guys to address those concerns. So Dana Holgerson's second seasons, if you didn't read my article on six-year sports, go check that out. His second year at his previous stops, whether it's at West Virginia, when he was OC at Houston or at Texas Tech, the improvements from year one to year two are insane. And if you want to see kind of a preview of what Houston can do, go check that out. Uh, I'm also linked it in this article that I wrote for Underdog Dynasty. So those are four sleeper teams that can benefit from SMU and Navy struggles. We will see how that plays out this year. So now let's jump into week two. Week two has a number of omissions thanks to you know Tulsa, Oklahoma State being moved back, SMU, TCU being postponed as well. So that's that's tough. So there's not really a ton of exciting games. There's actually only two games. The first one is USF hosts the Citadel. They're a 20.5-point favorite. It's Jeff Scott's first game as USF head coach. And the second one is Tulane travels to South Alabama, a South Alabama team that upset Southern Miss. Uh, you know, I, I did a podcast with Steve Helwick just recently, and he predicted that South Alabama pulls off the upset. So this is a team that's dangerous, but Tulane is kind of a team that no one really pays attention to, and Willie Fritz has in in a good position, and they could be a competitor in the AC. Maybe they take a step back. We don't really know what Tulane's going to do this year. There's a lot of turnover on the offense, but there's also a couple guys like Amari Jones that will be exciting to watch. And this might be the new norm. We might have games that are supposed to happen and they get pushed back because of this pandemic. So we will see what happens there. But then we jump into week three. We're not going to go into those games. And I'll just tell you, there's a lot to be excited about in week three in terms of the matchups that we will get to see. So there's plenty to look forward to. Week two may not be the most exciting for the AAC, but this is a big year for the conference. This is a year where there, if there is a playoff, there's a chance that they can make it. And it's going to require an undefeated team. I don't know if that's even going to be enough. There might be, there definitely has to be something that goes wrong in the ACC, the Big 12, and the SEC for them to get in. But if they dom- one team dominates enough with Memphis and UCF and Cincinnati competing at the top, it might be tough to see one of those teams go undefeated just because the other two are so good, depending on who you want that to be. It might be tough for them to get in the to the playoff just because there are two other teams that are going to give them a hard time, and there's a lot of potential. We just went through sleeper teams: Houston, ECU, and Tulsa. Tulsa beat UCF last year. Houston's capable of upsetting any of those teams. ECU is a wild card because they're so explosive at times, but they just have a few things that really hinder them. So we don't really know, and that might be the reason that it hurts them this year, but. The AAC is definitely headed in the right direction. Even with this pandemic going on, there's a lot to be excited about. Hopefully no more games get pushed back, but if they do, that just means the next week we'll have more games to watch, and hopefully that can keep our excitement for now. Uh, If you are not paying attention to the AAC, then you're kind of missing out. This is a great conference to, to watch. They provide plenty of entertainment despite what week one showed us. And I think that 
this is a conference that's going to be worth watching for the long run. So if you want to check out my work for the AAC, you can find it mostly at Underdog Dynasty. You can also find my work at Sixth Year Sports. And again, the, the Twitter handles are just how they sound. If you aren't following me already, you can follow me at Joe Broback on Twitter. And if you are just looking for general college football, you can hit me up with anything that you think. If you want to talk about anything, just let me know. Uh, you will also find all my random nonsense and college football related information on Twitter as well. So thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time.